Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hi, hello, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and here I am again with another of my favorite episodes from last year. The pandemic brought us the wild world of Theseus, and it also brought us the wilder world of frogs ribbiting in the underworld. I mean, who saw that coming? That's right. Today's episode is a re-airing of one of the silliest plays I've ever covered on the podcast, Aristophanes' The Frogs. Dionysus traveling to the underworld? Check. Singing frogs? Check. A battle between Euripides and Aeschylus? Check. It has it all. 
But before we get there, a reminder of the anniversary giveaway and favorite moments that is happening right now. Here's the deal. First, remember, all of the terms and details of the giveaway are at mythsbaby.com giveaway. Next, there are three parts to this giveaway. One is special to Patreon, so if you want to be entered there too, head over to Patreon and become a patron. If not, listen up. There will be entries via email and Instagram. And with all three, there will be a giveaway of a book and some merch for a total of three books three pieces of merch. Again, details are on mythsbaby.com slash giveaway or the posts of each of those places. The biggest reminder is though, again, I am sorry, you can only enter the podcast if you live in the US and Canada. This is purely due to shipping expense. There are now posts on Instagram and Patreon where you can enter this giveaway. Check those posts out for more details and how to enter. Again, sorry, only US and Canada, so please do not enter the giveaway if you live elsewhere. But for this four-year anniversary celebration, I do want to hear your favorite moments from the podcast. Favorite stories, quotes, moments, rants, anything. So if you live in the US or Canada and you want to enter the giveaway, then comment with your favorite moment, rant, anything on those posts on Instagram or Patreon or by sending an email with the subject line giveaway. You will be my favorite person in the world if you add a timestamp of where your favorite moment is so that I can actually find it and include it in the podcast. And if you don't live in the US and Canada and you still want to provide me with your favorite moment for a chance to be featured on the podcast episode, please do. I can't wait to hear from you. Just send it via email with the subject line fave moment or comment on the Instagram post that is asking for those favorite moments outside of the giveaway. I'm trying to make this easy for you, but I also am really excited to get your favorite moments. So we're sort of figuring out workarounds there. Again, for those moments, I'm going to pick my favorite ones in terms of content, your messages, whether or not you made it easy for me to find in the episodes that I can actually feature it. And I will be featuring those alongside some of my favorite moments in the special anniversary episode. Again, the giveaway will end on at midnight on July 19th and winners will be notified soon after according to those giveaway terms I've mentioned. But if you want your moment to be featured in the episode, I need to have it before about July 17th. Finally, again, details are at mythsbaby.com giveaway. And now, frogs. This is episode 74, Frog's Ribbit en route to the Underworld, Aristophanes' The Frogs, part one. Let me set the scene. Dionysus appears on stage. He wears a bright yellow robe. It's fitting for a Dionysiac festival, but we're told resembles what women wore. Over this, he's placed a lion skin, and he holds a club. He's trying, poorly, to disguise himself as Heracles. If you see a man in a lion skin holding a club, it's Heracles. This is very helpful when viewing marbles and artwork from the ancient world. You can sound smart when you notice it. 
a quick tangent. I recently went to see the new adaptation of Jane Austen's Emma. It's wonderful. Austen has my heart. Just in time, too, because they shut down our theaters days after. There's a passing shot of a marble bust of, you guessed it, Heracles. I whisper over to my mom, that's Heracles. She laughs. I sound smart and interesting. And so here is Dionysus, dressed somewhat frumpily, appearing as a meh-looking middle-aged man. He has with him a servant named Xanthius. Xanthius is laden with lots of bundles and luggage, and he's riding a donkey. It's all very comical. Xanthius looks out at the audience of the play and asks Dionysus next to him, So, should I make one of the old jokes? The ones audiences always find so funny? We're off with a bang. We're going meta here, and it's going to be great. With a sigh, Dionysus replies, Just don't keep saying, oh, what a load, okay? Sure, sure, says Xanthius. Something craftier then. More highbrow. How about, quote, If nobody will take away my pack, I'll let a fart and blow it off my back. How about you set that one aside for later, is Dionysus' reply. So what, says Xanthius, I've been lugging all of this around and I can't even make a joke about it. All the best comedic writers have a hilarious baggage-carrying gag. Well, this one won't, Dionysus tells him. Ignoring Xanthius, Dionysus points out to him that, for all his complaints, it seems near sacrilegious that he, the one of them who is a god, must walk, while Xanthius, a slave, rides comfortably on the donkey. I am carrying the luggage, Xanthius replies petulantly. You are not! You're riding a donkey! Sure, but I'm carrying the luggage. This goes on. Sadly, I cannot simply read you the play. I kind of wish I could. The two quip back and forth. Is he really carrying the luggage if the donkey's carrying all the weight? You ask my shoulders, is Xanthius's reply. Well, then you'd best change places with the donkey, says Dionysus. He isn't doing much good if that's the case. Finally, the pair makes their way to the door on stage. Xanthius troubles himself with getting off the donkey and freeing himself of all the packages he's been holding. His poor shoulders. Dionysus knocks on the door, yelling inside when no one answers. Hey there, slave, I know you're inside. Open up. Who's there? A voice calls from inside. Some centaur, surely, the voice grumbles. Finally, it's Heracles himself who opens the door. The real and true Heracles. Tall, muscular, very heroic looking. He's a little older now, but still looks good. And so he finds the stout, frumpily, oddly dressed man before him quite funny. It's clear the man is imitating Heracles in his dress, yet no one in their right mind could possibly be convinced. Heracles breaks down in riotous laughter, ending up on the floor. Huh, did you see that? Dionysus asks asks Xanthius as Heracles tries to collect himself. What? Answers Xanthius. I scared him, Dionysus replies, very proud of himself. Heracles gets to his feet, tries to return to his home, but Dionysus stops him. Wait, he calls. I have something to ask you. Heracles returns, still laughing. I'm sorry, old man, but I can't help myself. What are you wearing? Why the lion skin? Why the club? While I was away on Cleisthenes' ship, he says, referring to a recent naval battle, and I had the most incredible desire. For what? A woman? Heracles quips. Or maybe a man? No, no, says Dionysus. Have you ever just had an incredible desire for, say, pea soup? 
Of course. When do I not? Heracles replies as though that's the most normal question and response imaginable. Well, you see, that's the kind of desire I have for Euripides. Heracles looks at Dionysus, very confused. Euripides, but he's dead. He died last year. Still, replies Dionysus, nothing will stop me from going to see him. You mean in the underworld? Even farther if I have to. Why? Heracles is all of us, confused. I need a poet who can really write, says Dionysus. Everyone now is bad or dead. Some alternatives are proposed to Dionysus. Poets who, Heracles would suggest, aren't awful and are notably alive. But Dionysus will have none of it. No, he simply must speak with Euripides, dead or not. Heracles lists so many poets that I have to assume were real in ancient Greece, given Euripides was very much real. But to all of them, Dionysus has his reasons for finding them lacking. Honestly, it's fascinating given Euripides is one of the three that we do have remaining. Dionysus does note Sophocles as well, but it is Euripides that Dionysus feels is best suited to what he needs. Oh, Euripides, he really is the best, even now. Throughout this exchange, poor Xanthius likes to drop in a line or two about how no one is paying attention to him and, oh, his poor shoulder. Getting back to the point, says Dionysus, I'm here dressed in this way because you've been there before. You remember Cerberus. So I wanted to ask you for any tips you might have. Quote, any useful contacts down there? Where you get the boat? Which are the best eating houses, bread shops, wine shops? (laughs) Heracles looks at Dionysus, less than amused. You're not seriously considering going down there, he asks. I absolutely am, replies Dionysus. You just tell me the fastest way to get there, please. Well, Heracles considers, there's always the rope and the tree, if you don't mind hanging out a bit. Dionysus replies, quote, don't give me a pain in my neck. Okay, well, there's always the mortar and pestle then. You're referring to hemlock, Dionysus notes dryly. Heracles nods. You want to go straight down, Heracles asks. Exactly. Well, you know the tower? Just go up to the top and watch from below, then count one, two, three, and let go. No, no, Dionysus says. Quote, just think, all those lovely brains. I'm not going that way. Well, how do you want to get there? Heracles finally asks. However you did. Well, that's a very long trip, replies Heracles. You'll start at a very big, very bottomless lake. The ferryman there will take you across if you pay him. It's amazing what you can pay for these days, Dionysus exclaims. Yes, it was Theseus, the Athenian, who introduced it, Heracles says. Once you're over the lake, you'll get to all the snakes and monsters, so many snakes and monsters. And then there's that nasty marsh, the river of shit. He goes on and on. Heracles continues telling Dionysus and Xanthius, though. Xanthius is just hanging back, complaining every once in a while, about what else they'll encounter on their way to Pluto's palace in the underworld. Finally, he finishes, telling Dionysus, good luck, and he goes back inside his house, shutting the door. Once Heracles has returned inside, Dionysus and Xanthius turn once more to each other. How to proceed? The first thing they notice? The pair's donkey has wandered off. They're donkeyless now. As they look around, mournful music begins to play, and a funeral procession crosses in front of them, corpses being carried off to their resting places. There, nudges Xanthius. Look at all those bodies they're carrying. Why don't you hire one of them to bring your things down? 
hmm, Dionysus thinks. What if they don't want to? Then I will, says Xanthius, but you might as well ask. Dionysus agrees. Excuse me, hello, he calls to the corpses. Excuse me, you there, body. The corpse sits up straight. Those carrying him stop. Dionysus continues. Could you help me and take my things down to the underworld with you? Two drachmas, the corpse tells Dionysus. Drachmas are money. No, that's too much, Dionysus replies, shaking his head. The corpse shrugs, then motions to the men carrying him. You can keep going, he tells them. Wait, Dionysus calls and offers him more money. To which the corpse replies, quote, I'd rather live. <laughs> Guys, this play is so ridiculous. I love it. The full-blown corpse follows this quip by giving a jerk and <clears throat> lying back down before being carried off dead once more by the men. With a sigh, poor Xanthius resigns himself and begins to load himself up once again with all of Dionysus's things. They continue on, arriving at the lake and finding the ferryman, Charon. Charon agrees to take Dionysus across, but Xanthius will have to walk. He won't take slaves, he tells Xanthius. It's pretty objectively horrible, so do I even need to comment? Anyway, Charon will take Dionysus. Xanthius must walk around and meet him on the other side. Meanwhile, things aren't the easiest for Dionysus on the ferry. There's a very comedic exchange that, frankly, I can't recite all of it to you because I'm how long into this episode and only 16 pages into the play. Lord. Anyway, the kicker is that Sharon makes Dionysus row the oars to get them across while Sharon stands at the front very comfortable. It's a very entertaining scene. You'll have to read it. In the end, though, Dionysus does indeed row, and Sharon sets a tempo by calling to Dionysus, In out. And once he does, off stage, we hear the first rumblings of the chorus. The chorus of frogs. Yes, One of the choruses of this Greek play is not Corinthian elders nor women of Thebes. No, they're simply frogs, singing frogs. This translation I'm using, you can find it in the episode's description, manages to keep the rhyming structure of the ancient Greek. And so the first choral ode of the frogs is incredible. It's probably a bit much to quote, but I'm going to anyway, don't tell. The first time we hear these choral frogs, they sing, quote, Oh, we are the musical frogs. We live in the marshes and bogs. Sweet, sweet is the hymn that we sing as we swim, and our voices are known for their beautiful tone. When on festival days we sing to the praise of the genial God, and we don't think it odd when the worshipping throng, to the sound of our song, rolls home through the marshes and bogs. You should probably just go buy this play now. I mean, even in Canada, this cute little edition was only $5. Don't buy from Amazon. Dionysus is less than thrilled by this chorus of musical frogs that is shown up. Why are you even here? Is basically his response, to which they tell him another incredible song that I wish I could recite to you. But instead, a highlight. The frogs make very clear to Dionysus that they are a very well-respected musical group. Thank you very much. When anyone needs anything for their instruments, Apollo, even Pan, they head to the frogs of the marshes and bogs, who are, quote, the rage on Parnassus, for none can surpass us. I hope this joke stands on its own. But just in case, Parnassus is where the muses are. 
making it a particularly important place for creativity, namely song. Still, Dionysus doesn't care about these frogs. He's now more concerned with the blisters forming on his ass from all the sitting and rowing. But the frogs won't abate. For the duration of the boat ride, Dionysus argues with the chorus of frogs. They sing extensive rhyming odes about their burps and other frog-related things. He counters, claiming he can match them equally in everything, going so far as to imitate their froggy sounds. Finally, the frogs fall silent. Oh. Dionysus feels he's won their silly battle of the species, gods versus frogs, the ultimate singing showdown. Tragically, this is the only scene with the frogs. The frogs are gone because the boat has reached the water's edge. It crashes into the shore with a thud. Dionysus pays Charon, who shoves off again, leaving him alone in the now very dark beginnings of the underworld. He calls out for Xanthius in the darkness, and before long they find each other once more. The two are weary, on the lookout for all the horrible things Heracles told them would be on the other side of the lake. There's a sound. They're spooked. Xanthius sees it first, describing the monstrous figure to Dionysus. It keeps changing, transforming from animal to monster, briefly to a woman, which intrigues Dionysus. He tries to push past Xanthius at that. But before he can see her, the monster is transformed into a dog. Dionysus tells Xanthius that it must be an empusa. The two are frightened, wondering aloud where they should go. Dionysus spots a priest of, well, Dionysus in the crowd, in the real audience, because there would have been a priest of Dionysus in the front row. The plays were performed for the god, so a priest is expected. Dionysus calls to this very real priest in the audience of the play, imploring him to help, before adding, quote, Remember that drink we're going to have after the show. Moving on through the path to the underworld, the pair pass by the Ampusa without any more incidents, next coming across the other chorus of the play, not as fun as the frogs, a chorus of young and old men and women, initiates of Iacos, of the cult of Eleusinian mysteries, those dedicated to Demeter and Persephone. They sing, dancing across the stage. The initiates perform their ceremony, eating and drinking and dancing and singing, before finally addressing Dionysus and Xanthius, who stand nearby, watching. Simply, they don't want them there. These outsiders are not welcome. All the same, the initiates continue their worship of Demeter, Persephone, and Iacos. At one point, the initiates start straight up pointing to the members of the audience and making fun of them, like specific people who were in the audience, and it's great. It's pretty interactive and mean play. It's good shit. But finally, Dionysus interrupts them to ask their help in their continued journey into the underworld. He asks where they'll find Master Pluto. Just continue on, they tell him. You're nearly there. So they do. Xanthius loads up again, throwing in another few complaints about his having to carry everything. And next time, couldn't you have all your luggage sent in advance? That's how they do things now. Dionysus and Xanthius arrive at Pluto's palace in the underworld, or Hades as they call it in this play, but I just have trouble with that. Dionysus prepares to knock on the door, but questions himself. What kind of knock is appropriate? Don't forget you're supposed to be Heracles, Xanthius reminds him. Finally, he knocks. Iacus, one of the judges of the underworld, comes to the door. Who's there? he calls. Heracles the Brave? Dionysus stutters ironically. This part 
doesn't go as planned. Iacus is not the happiest with Heracles, and hearing he's at the door, Iacus loses his shit. You've got a lot of nerve coming back here, he tells the man he believes to be Heracles. After what you did trying to hurt a little dog like Cerberus, don't think I don't remember. Iacus proceeds to hurl endless threats at Heracles, exactly what he'll do to the man if he gets his hands on him. He's still pretty mad about the time Heracles visited the underworld on the quest for Cerberus. It was Iacus who got to watch over the cutie pie three-headed pup. He's heckin' mad. He tells Dionysus, basically, BRB while I go back inside and get the hundred-headed viper, the lamprey, and gorgons that are going to devour you and all your organs. I didn't mean to rhyme, but didn't that sound great? Iacus heads back inside and Dionysus collapses in terror. Strong and brave god that he is. Once he collects himself, trying to save face in front of Xanthius, who assures Dionysus that he wasn't the least bit scared. Well, if you're not scared, why don't you switch places with me? Dionysus proposes. We'll trade clothes, you be Heracles for a while. So they do. But once Xanthius is dressed like Heracles, it isn't Iacus who returns to the door with his hundred-headed viper. No, this time it's a maid of Persephone. Heracles, she calls. It's so nice of you to come back. As soon as Persephone heard you were coming, she started to cook. There's a pot of pea soup on the stove and cakes and everything. Why don't you come in? Xanthius resists, trying to keep from following the women inside, but when she tells him that there are some pretty girls dancing in there, well, that changes his mind. Dancing ladies, you say. Well then, he turns to Dionysus, calling, boy, bring in that luggage. Wait just a second, Dionysus replies. Did you think I was serious about us switching? No, no, you give me the clothes back. I'm Heracles. You couldn't possibly be him. You're a slave. Xanthius tries to resist, but Dionysus pulls the god card. And so Xanthius, quite disappointed now, switches back. Dionysus is once again Heracles. But the very moment he's dressed as the hero once more, it isn't the maid returning to them, but two landladies who immediately recognize Heracles as the man who once ate 16 loaves of their bread and paid almost nothing for it. And not only that, It seems Heracles basically ate these women out of house and home. They have endless things to say that the man ate, just far too much food, frankly, and barely paid them. They are so pissed. They begin to issue similar threats to what Iacus said, what exactly they want to do with Dionysus. But they need help, so they head back inside to get someone to help them punish Dionysus, or Heracles, rather. And so just as suddenly as before, Dionysus wants to switch clothes again. (laughs) Oh no, says Xanthius. Didn't you just tell me I couldn't possibly pass as Heracles because I'm a slave? No, no, what are you talking about? Dionysus tries to backtrack. Have I mentioned you're one of my best friends? Oh, really, replies Xanthius. Oh, absolutely, just one of my favorite people. Now, would you take this stunning lion skin? Really suits you, brings out your eyes. You look incredible. Again, have I mentioned how great you are? Xanthius is still hesitant. I promise if I ask for it again, I may I rot for eternity. And everyone I love, too. That was enough. Xanthius agrees and takes the lion skin from Dionysus. He is Heracles once more. This time, though, the chorus is there to warn him that Dionysus will ask to switch back in an instant if the moment suits him. Oh, I know, Xanthius tells them. I'm ready for it. But in the meantime, I must practice my Heracles look, he says, making an expression that he calls a, quote, vinegar face. Now, Iacus does return, and he has men with him to capture Heracles, chain him up for what he did to Cerberus. 
Xanthius as Heracles tries to fend them off, behaving as much like the hero god as he can muster. Meanwhile, Dionysus mutters about how this Heracles fellow should be ashamed of himself. Stealing dogs, resisting arrest, ugh. Hey now, says Xanthius, I swear I haven't done any of the things you're accusing me of, haven't taken anything from you, swear it. Now, here's what you can do. I'll let you torture my slave instead, and if I'm proved wrong, then you can kill me. This is what Iacus wanted to hear. Oh, that does sound tempting, he says. What kind of torture are you thinking? Oh, anything at all, replies Xanthius, before listing out a slew of things he'd be more than happy to let them do to Dionysus. Anything except hitting him with an onion, Xanthius clarifies. That, quote, brings tears to my eyes. Once Xanthius provides such extensive suggestions for how exactly Iacus can torture Dionysus, Dionysus himself finally speaks out, giving up his secret in an effort to save himself. Wait! No, no, you can't torture me, he says. I'm an immortal, a god, he tells them. No, I won't allow you to do it. Sorry, what? Iacus replies incredulously. You heard me, says Dionysus. I'm a god. I'm Dionysus, son of Zeus himself. It's him, he points at Xanthius, that's the slave. That's just one more reason to torture him, Xanthius retorts. If he's a god, he won't feel it. If that's the case, calls Dionysus, then you, Heracles, are a god too. Why don't you whip both of us? Yes, agrees Xanthius. Whoever feels it isn't a god at all. In this, this begins a scene where both of these men are being flogged quite violently by Iacus, a judge in the underworld. Meanwhile, after every hit, they make jokes about whether or not they can feel it. It seems neither of them can, and after a few tries really trying to make them feel it, Iacus gives in. I can't figure out which of you is the god, he announces in the end. Just come inside, he tells them. I can't tell, but Master Pluto and Persephone will be able to tell which of you is a god. They're gods themselves. To which Dionysus quips, Gee, you'd think we could have thought of that earlier. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do find this missing girlfriend and tell her story with the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one like my producer Anna oh my god my friend Dr. Mindy Shapiro hi it's Dr. Shapiro and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner and of course Gail's sister Elaine Katz having no closure it kills you join us as we try to solve a 35 year old cold case It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby Award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, 
and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. This is episode 75, Battle of the Poets, Euripides versus Aeschylus, Aristophanes, the Frogs, part two. Dionysus and Xanthius have been invited into the palace of the underworld where everyone's favorite couple resides. But sadly, we won't meet the couple made extraordinarily famous by a webcomic. No, for now, Xanthius and a slave of the underworld are doing some work, having a nice chat. They discuss their roles as the slaves of these powerful gods. The basic premise? They do what they can to spy on their masters, listening for gossip that they might then spread around to anyone who'd listen. They bond over this, and the way they're both willing to shit-talk the people that own them, it's kind of nice, I guess, that if you have to be slaves in a play, they get to shit-talk the slaveholders. Of course, it's all meant to be very comedic, but at the same time, they do make them nice and sympathetic characters. So, you know, it's something. In the end, though, Xanthius asks his new friend what he's hearing through that nearby door. What's going on in there? He asks, motioning to where the yelling can be heard. Oh, says the new friend. Well, that's Aeschylus and Euripides. And what's happening? Xanthius asks. Oh, well, there's quite the upset down here lately, nearing civil war, really, the older slave of the underworld tells Xanthius. See, down here, when it comes to the arts, whoever is the best in their field gets to have dinner next to Pluto, the guest of honor, you could say. It's a tradition down here. And if someone else dies and joins us down here that is perhaps better than the person who's been having the dinners next to Pluto, well, then he has to give up his seat to the new guy, whoever's best. That's the rule. So what is it that's got Aeschylus all worked up? Xanthius asks. Well, since he's been dead, he's had the seat for tragedy, the best of the best. And someone's taken it? Well, the slave replies, then see Euripides showed up down here and he's been showing off to everyone around, mainly to a group of some of the roughest guys down here, murderers, burglars, you know the type. He's been talking himself up. And so these guys decide, hey, we think Euripides is the best. So in goes Euripides, takes a seat next to Pluto and shoves Aeschylus aside. 
a quick side note, let's be honest here. Euripides is the best. This play is about to turn into an argument for who's the best, but like Euripides is the best. Ugh, God, it's obvious. So was Euripides kicked aside? Aeschylus reinstated? Xanthius asks. No, you see, these guys down here, they claim they get to decide who's best. They've made a real loud ruckus about it, too. All saying it's Euripides who deserves the seat, says the slave. And no one's defending Aeschylus? Well, there aren't that many particularly good people down here. Just look around, the slave replies as he waves his arm toward the audience. Again, the shade throwing. I love it. Also, love the implication here that only shitty people think that Euripides is the best. And I mean, sure, given I love Euripides because he's the darkest, most violent, most sympathetic to women, I think all those things would qualify me as a bad guy in the underworld. So be it. So what's Pluto going to do about it? Xanthius asks the slave. There's going to be a contest, replies the slave. A proper contest, too. All legal, with judging and measuring. And what about Sophocles? Xanthius asks. Oh, Well, when Sophocles ended up down here, he went up to Aeschylus and he basically just conceded he didn't want to take the seat from him, even when Aeschylus offered that it could be his. Nope, Sophocles tells him, it's yours. But now that there's a contest, he's on hand. You see, if Aeschylus wins, Sophocles stays away. It's Aeschylus' seat. But if Euripides wins, oh, well, then Sophocles will go up against him too. Poor Euripides. I mean, honestly, the hate, the disrespect, the man is the best. Also, some context here that I've learned since I released last week's episode. It seems that Sophocles had really just died by the time this play was being performed. It was already mostly written by the time he died, and so he isn't featured in this contest in the underworld. He hadn't been dead when the majority was written. But once he died, Aristophanes knew he couldn't just not mention the guy, so instead he added in little snippets like this. It's really going to go down then, Xanthius notes dramatically. It is, replies the slave. And right here, too, they want to weigh the weight of the poetry right in this spot. Weigh the poetry? Xanthius asks, confused. But before the slave can answer, more slaves come out of the door on stage, carrying a very intricate set of scales. They set it up on the stage, along with seating for the contest that's about to take place. Oh yes, the older slave answers Xanthius as things are being set up. It'll be weighted and measured with rulers and compasses and, oh, you know, all the things to figure out who's the best tragedian. And who will be the judge? That's the trick, isn't it? Says the slave. It's hard to find anyone clever enough. Certainly all the men down here aren't smart enough for something like this. Quote, none of them could tell a poet from the hind leg of a donkey. Instead, they've had to settle for your master, he tells Xanthius. Xanthius and the underworld slave retreat back inside, being replaced with the chorus, tragically, not the frog one. Dionysus, who sits on a very fancy throne, a group of so-called distinguished dead who are there to watch, and of course, the stars of our show, Aeschylus and Euripides. They're arguing right from the jump, yelling at each other as they walk to their places on the stage. Before we hear from these poets, these famous tragedians, the chorus prepares us. A brief play-by-play of what's to come and what's already started. These two very smart, very poetic men defending themselves in their trade. Oh, what a show! The very second the chorus is finished, Euripides is in, making himself known. Why should I drop out? He announces. It's simple. I'm the better poet. Anything to say to that, Aeschylus? Dionysus, their judge, asks. But Aeschylus doesn't answer. He's just too angry for words. A little cliché for you, isn't it? Euripides chides Aeschylus. Such an Aeschylean response. The intentional silence. 
Now, now, says Dionysus, that's a bit too sweeping of a statement, Euripides. To which Euripides replies by calling Aeschylus uncultivated, that he has no restraint. Quote, just a torrent of verbiage, stiff with superlatives and padded out with pretentious polysyllables. Hard to tell if this is meant to be ironic or it's just a result of the translation. Either way, it works. It's probably the former. Aeschylus quips back about Euripides' rustic ancestry and questions the characters of Euripides, calling them threadbare and commonplace. Dionysus tries to reel Aeschylus back, but he can't be contained. He notes that Euripides fills his play with unsavory topics like incest. Which, I mean, seems like it should be an insult tossed at the man who wrote Oedipus Tyrannus, but who am I to judge? Before Aeschylus can hurl another example of unsavory topics at Euripides, Dionysus stops him. He literally pushes the man into his seat and asks Euripides if he wouldn't like to move back. Quote, I wouldn't want you to get hit on the head by a principal clause and give birth to a premature tragedy. The wordplay, you guys. The wordplay. I just cannot. Most of this dialogue is weaponizing grammar in a way that is wildly enjoyable, and I wish I could quote more, but such is life. You should read it. Like I said, this edition was like $5 Canadian, so I am sure it is affordable as hell everywhere. Just saying. Aeschylus, Dionysus adds, you need to calm down. Surely two men of your stature can debate without it turning into a screaming match. Euripides, though, assures Dionysus that he can handle it. Come at me, he tells Aeschylus. Criticize whatever you want. Pick a play, any play. And he lists off a number of plays. Tragically, all of which are fragmentary or lost completely. Oh, well, Aeschylus counters, in this type of contest, I'm at a loss. You see, all my plays have survived after me, so I don't have them with me. Yours died with you. An ironic statement in hindsight, given we have way more of Euripides' plays today than any other playwright, but I'm biased, again, because I fucking love his work. Before we begin in earnest, Dionysus notes, getting everyone's attention, we must perform the necessary rites. He does the necessary rituals, pouring libations, and the like, before calling for a hymn to the muses. The chorus sings to the muses, calling upon them to come and watch the contest, these women who control the very concepts of creativity. Next, the playwrights must show their respect to the gods. Aeschylus calls to Demeter, thanking her for nourishing his brain and hoping aloud that he's worthy of her mysteries. But Euripides, Euripides declines to take his turn in prayer to the gods, saying that he prays to other gods. What, your own pantheon? quips Dionysus as a joke. But Euripides confirms. This is interesting, the idea that Euripides prays to other gods. It's probably a commentary on how he tells his stories. His stories are often about normal people in place of gods, Medea, for instance. His plays examine the world in a very different way from Aeschylus' work, which is traditional, about heroes and worship of the standard gods. Which, of course, is why I prefer Euripides, but why he was perhaps not quite as appreciated in the theatrical circles he ran in. He's edgy. The contest from here begins to take form. The men provide pros for themselves, cons for their rivals. Euripides takes issue with the use of silence in Aeschylus, accusing him of bringing dramatic characters on stage and having them sit idly in silence for most of the play. 
Euripides uses the example of Niobe, but when it comes to plays I'm most familiar with, the obvious example here is Cassandra. In Aeschylus's Oresteia, Cassandra is on the stage in utter silence for a great majority of the play. It's making a point, it's dramatic, but Euripides finds it lazy. All my characters speak is his counter to this accusation on Aeschylus. Women, slaves, masters, old crones, they all speak, Euripides says of his own work. He goes on to accuse Aeschylus of featuring mythical beasts, nonsensical creatures where none are necessary, or of jumping into a story right in the middle of things. My prologues always lay out where we're at right at the top, Euripides says. Of course, it's clear from much of their arguments that it's simply a matter of taste. I prefer Euripides, without question, but many of the things he's criticizing Aeschylus for are great plot devices, in medias res, beginning in the middle of everything, or the very dramatic use of a silent woman on stage. Though, at the same time, Euripides giving women real lines and real character traits is why I prefer him. It's all relative, boys. But that is not the answer they are looking for. The contest goes on. Euripides continues his criticism of Aeschylus with a familiar through-line. Aeschylus, he says, is always using excessive, fancy words. It's all very highbrow and not in a good way. Whereas Euripides speaks to the masses, he waves towards the audience, using them as his example. I tell stories of the types of people these folks are familiar with. He explains that he's taught people to use logic by including it in his plays. He's taught them to ask questions in their daily lives, how to run their homes, when to ask, but why is it this way? Dionysus, though, their lofty judge, isn't falling for Euripides' argument, even though, personally, I am, but I'm not judging this. Dionysus mocks this claim by Euripides, noting that, yes, these days all Athenians return home and start asking endless questions of their servants. Why is this here? Why have you done that? Meanwhile, before, all they did was come home and sit in silence, facing a wall. It's the chorus's turn to have their say, and they want Aeschylus to speak. It's clear who they think should be the winner. They root for Aeschylus to finally speak his mind, calling him the great poet of the age. This, it seems, is what he needed, which makes sense, as Aeschylus did love a good chorus. Aeschylus speaks, and, well, Aeschylus sounds pretty sanctimonious to me. Anyway, he's going on about how he wishes he didn't have to do this, but he supposes he'll have to stoop to Euripides' level so as not to be accused of not defending himself. He's all very collective and conservative-sounding, very dry and old, and maybe that's why I'm being so biased in this interpretation, regardless. He asks Euripides, what makes a good poet? Euripides says that it's about teaching the audience something, to make them into better citizens. And if the poet doesn't do that, counters Aeschylus, if they present good and noble men as villains. Death! Dionysus jumps in without waiting a beat. It should be death for that poet. My heroes, continues Aeschylus, are always that, valiant men, heroes through and through. And how did you show this in them? Euripides asks. Why, by putting them in a wartime drama. After one of those plays, men couldn't help but wish to go out and defeat the enemy. Aeschylus continues to hype his plays, listing many wartime stories he's told, likening himself to Homer, who, he says, is so important now because of what he talks about with war strategy, weapons, the like. This Aeschylus, though I can't say about the real one, seems overly concerned with war, far more than art. This does track, though, as Aeschylus himself was a war hero, having been in some of the most famous battles of the Persian Wars, and most of his writing was done when Greece was at war with the Persians, and so most of it is about war. 
Continuing his high and mighty tone, Aeschylus notes that his plays depict men of valor, strong and brave, and that, quote, I didn't clutter my stage with harlots like Phaedra and Sthenabea. No one can say I've ever put an erotic female into any play of mine. If you could see me right now, you'd see my eyes roll into the back of my head. Euripides quips back, quote, How could you? You've never even met one. Good one, Euripides. And again, why I prefer you. Gotta love to be proud that you don't feature women in your plays. Ah, the ancient world. And the current one? Aeschylus goes on to accuse Euripides' depictions of women like Phaedra and Cenobia of causing so-called decent women, being so shocked that they go off and poison themselves. I do believe we can assume this not to be true. Did I invent the story of Phaedra? Is Euripides' incredibly apt response, basically saying he's simply portraying the women that the mythology's given us. All the power to you, my man. Aeschylus says that, of course, those things happen, but that it's poets' jobs to stay silent, not to portray awful things like that. Anyway, Aeschylus is being a bit of a turd in this section. He continues on, aided by Dionysus, in basically accusing Euripides of having, in some way, caused the degradation of their society. People aren't playing sports anymore, they're debating instead. The horror! I don't know, it sounds like Athens has found a level of freedom of excitement, a bit of debauchery, and these men can find a way of blaming Euripides for it. Euripides, I'm here for you. You're awesome. Next, we're going to prologues. Euripides says that Aeschyluses really are atrocious and simply don't set the scene at all. He uses Aeschylus's Libation Bearers as an example. That's the play that takes place right after his Agamemnon in the Oresteia, Orestes at the tomb of his father, who's been killed by Clytemnestra and Aegisthus. Aeschylus reads a few lines, and Euripides is there to tell him there are just countless mistakes in those few lines, let alone the rest. They fight over language, the use of particular words over others. The audience sides with each, in turn, for different reasons. All in fighting over whether one can confidently claim that Orestes both came to his homeland and returned to it. At one point, emphasizing why I won't try to break down what they're saying in too much detail for you all, Dionysus simply exclaims, quote, Brilliant, brilliant! Wish I knew what you were talking about. Their arguments, needless to say, are detailed and nitpicky to a fault. They go on, next with Aeschylus criticizing Euripides' prologues, which Aeschylus decides he can break apart with a bottle of oil. This leads to... Well, Euripides reciting lines from his prologues, and Aeschylus interrupting him to simply state, quote, lost his bottle of oil. I I want to understand this. I'm sure it's clever in some respect, as the characters in the play certainly believe so. I, however, do not get it, and the commentary I've found for the play does not explain it to me, so I cannot explain it to you all. Such, it seems, is life. Okay, I'm keeping all that, but a cursory Google with no academic backing suggests it's parodying the predictability in Euripides' prologues. As I love Euripides, I don't see how that tracks. Euripides is great. Anyway, they continue this thing with the bottle of oil a while, like pages. He reads so many prologue beginnings and Aeschylus substitutes lines for lost his bottle of oil many, many times. Maybe it works better in the ancient Greek. Aristophanes is funny as hell, so we should probably trust that it too is funny as hell. Somehow... In the end, Dionysus is very much in on this bottle of oil joke, and forces Euripides to concede that he has lost this one, and that he should move on to further non-prologue criticisms of Aeschylus. 
So Euripides moves on to verse. He begins to sing verses he claims are from Aeschylus' songs and all have the same point, in this case phrased in the same way that all the songs include calls for help that the singers cannot hold out much longer. This joke is clear. He's saying they're all the same, that he can sing one and sing them all. None of this bottle of oil nonsense. Dionysus agrees, though he allows Aeschylus to counter. Aeschylus, it seems, has prepared his mockery of Euripides beforehand. He whips out a scroll and begins to recite. He recites endless lyrics, seemingly in mockery of Euripides. Modern, simple language, the opposite of Aeschylus' own. I don't get it. But enough, Aeschylus announces once he's finished reading his scroll. Let us finally put this to the test. Bring out those scales. Let's weigh the poetry to see finally whose is weightier. His, he indicates Euripides, or my own. So the scales are brought forward, and Pluto himself, king of the underworld, pokes his head out of a window on stage. Dionysus positions the poets on stage. Each holds a pan of the scales. He tells them, when he orders... They'll each recite a line of poetry while holding their section of the scale. And Dionysus says, quote, When I call cuckoo, you both let go. In terms of physics, this is all still very confusing, but then it is a contest of poetry in the underworld. Each poet recites a line. Euripides speaks of the Argo and its winged sail. Aeschylus speaks of a watery veil. Cuckoo! Dionysus yells, and both men let go of their sides of the scale. One sinks on the side of Aeschylus. Would you look at that? Dionysus notes. This one's going right down. How could that be? Asks Euripides, annoyed. Well, he spoke of a watery veil. You spoke of a winged sail. Quite obviously, one is heavier than the other. Dionysus explains as though, duh. Here, try again, he tells them, and the men get into position once more. They try again. Euripides with a line about persuasion, Aeschylus with one about death. Once again, Aeschylus' side goes down. He talked about death, Dionysus states immediately, if that isn't a heavy word. Euripides is, rightly, annoyed by the way this is going, so he thinks long and hard about his next line, trying to come up with the weightiest of poetry. Finally, he's got one. Euripides goes with a line about an iron weapon, Aeschylus one about corpses and chariots. Again, Aeschylus' side of the scale sinks toward the ground. Corpses, nice and heavy, says Dionysus. At this, Aeschylus very haughtily announces that this is just not fair for poor Euripides, and that he'd happily let the poet jump right on the scale himself and add his wife and children and all his plays. Still, Aeschylus says, quite sure of himself, I would beat him with just a couple of lines. In this class war that late-stage capitalism has given us, Aeschylus is the billionaires and the landlords. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I'm saying it anyway. After this royally dickish statement, Dionysus jumps in, announcing that, truly, he likes them both so much for such different reasons. He doesn't know how he'll choose. Enter Pluto. I mean, like I said, he was already there with his head out the window, but now he speaks. The god of the underworld tells Dionysus that he's more than welcome to take one of these poets back with him, since that's what he's come for. No point in leaving empty-handed. Oh, perfect, says Dionysus, seemingly as though he's always remembered that that was his original intention in visiting the underworld. But I don't believe him. I, for one, forgot that that was the point of all this. Why do you want a poet? Euripides asks him. 
Oh, well, obviously to save the city. If we don't save the city, there won't be any more plays performed, and then where will I be? So Dionysus says, the man with the best suggestion of how we save the city will come back up with me. Here's my first question, he announces. What should we do about Alcibiades? Alcibiades, a man whose name I hope not to have to repeat too many times, was a political figure in Athens. Well, what do Athenians think, Euripides says. Oh, you know them, Dionysus replies. They love him, they hate him, all at once. Both poets answer with their thoughts about Alcibiades and Athens, and both Dionysus seems to like, not being able to decide between them while simultaneously joking that he can understand neither of their responses for similar yet different reasons. This goes on, with Euripides reciting more nonsense that sounds very smart and well thought out, but means absolutely nothing. It's intelligent gibberish. Quite funny, though. Aeschylus unknowingly makes a joke about the quality of people residing in Athens right now. According to Dionysus, they're shitty. Everyone laughs quite heartily. Pluto, though, is wishing they'd hurry the fuck along. Would you just decide? He asks Dionysus. Euripides takes this opportunity to plead with Dionysus, claiming that Dionysus swore to the gods that he'd take Euripides with him. But, alas, Dionysus goes with Aeschylus. How could you betray me like that? Euripides is distraught and calling upon a promise I don't know that we've heard about before. Would you just let me stay here to die? Euripides asks dramatically before amending it, or remain dead here? He finishes a little less dramatically. Eventually, poor Euripides is forcibly removed. Dionysus has made his decision. It's the wrong one, but he's made it. And I'm definitely not biased in telling this story. (sighs) So Dionysus makes his horrible, wildly wrong decision in deciding to bring Aeschylus back with him. Euripides is dragged off stage. And Pluto, reserving any sort of judgment, offers the two that they should come inside the palace. He'll host them before they make their way from the underworld and back to Athens. They enter the palace, and the chorus sings. The chorus sings about how troubling the people running Athens are right now, how they've forgotten what they can learn from tragedy, how they're all losing sight of what matters. It's very frank and very aimed at the very real people running the city. They sing about how glad they are that such a reasonable and intelligent man like Aeschylus will be returned to them. I still think it should have been Euripides, though. Once the chorus has had its say, the men exit the palace for their last hurrah on stage. Pluto hands Aeschylus a number of items, which he says are for very specific Athenian men, who he straight up names. This knife is for Cleophon, he says. These nooses for the tax commissioners. This bowl of hemlock is for Archinomus. And he names others. Aristophanes is out to fuck with the social order, it seems. Tell them all I'm waiting for them, Pluto adds dramatically. Will do, says Aeschylus, before adding that Pluto should give his seat at the table to Sophocles who's certainly second best, and absolutely never in a million years should it go to Euripides, Aeschylus says. The asshole. Oh, nerds. Thank you all so much for listening. Those fucking frogs, man, are some fun guys. This was such a fun episode. Remember to enter the giveaway if you live in the US or Canada, or if you don't and you just want to provide me with your favorite moment, please do so via the Instagram post or via email. I really am so excited to hear what you guys come up with. 
And for those of you who don't live in the U.S. and Canada and, and can't enter the giveaway, maybe take it upon yourselves to just one-up all those other people. <laughs> Thank you again. You're truly the best. Again, there's a reason I've been doing this for four years, and a huge part of it is just how cool and nice my listeners are, and the whole part of it is just that there are still listeners. So thank you. I absolutely cannot wait to hear from you. I am Liv, and I truly love this shit. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Thank you.